for those who don't know me, my name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are a church that is about Jesus. Uh, we want to see people uh, reconciled, uh, people renewed in the power of Jesus. And uh, we are in a series in the Bible uh, called Meet Jesus. And we are looking at the Gospel of John, which is perhaps out of all the books of the Bible, we get the most intimate picture of who Jesus is. And so we're continuing there. We're going to be in one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, John chapter 4. And I'm not going to read it uh, all up front because it's a longer passage, so I'm going to be going as we go and then stopping and pausing to to comment and bring out some of the background and context that's helpful uh, to understand it. And uh, we're, we're getting to a place where there's a surprising conversation that happens between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. And it's surprising because Jesus is in the wrong place, speaking to the wrong person who has done and practiced the wrong things. The title of this message is called, God Loves the Wrong People. God Loves the Wrong People. And and this is a story about the kind of work that God does. And Jesus is the one who reveals to us the nature of what this work looks like. And so there's going to be basically two major sections as part of this scripture. The first is looking at God's work as God's work crosses barriers of place, person, and practice. And the second part is God's work nourishes the soul by producing the joyful fruit of eternal life. Uh, Let me pray for us before we get into the passage. Father, uh, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to to understand your word, uh, help us to enter into this conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman, help us to, to glean from it what you want us to learn, what you want us to know about who you are and what you care about. Help us to understand your love and your grace for us. Lord, would you be with me as I preach from your word? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, just to give you a little context, uh, we had just come from chapter 3 where uh, we see uh, these almost competing or overlapping ministries occurring at the same time. Uh, If you remember, John the Baptist was engaged in this ministry of baptism. He was sort of the only game in town, and he at one point in time identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, and some of John's disciples started to follow Jesus. And now at this time, Jesus is also starting a baptism ministry, and many people, in fact, even more people, are now starting to go to Jesus and his disciples for baptism. And, And word is getting out... And now Jesus is starting to get worried that the Jewish authorities might reprimand him or even put him into prison. And so he starts to get on the move. And and so that's where we pick up in John chapter 4. Verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
The first part that I want to point out, verse 4, it says he had to pass through Samaria. It's a very interesting statement. The question is, what, is, what does that mean? So if Jesus is going from Judea to Galilee, which is further north, it's about a three days journey walking. The shortest way to get from Judea to Galilee was to go through the land of Samaria. But it wasn't the only physical route. In fact, there were other routes that people who were particularly religious Jews would actually go out of their way to avoid Samaria. Because the Samaritans were somewhat of a hybrid people. They were a mixed race. They were part Jewish and they were part Gentile. They had a hybrid religion. They accepted some things of Judaism, like the, 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 old, the uh, Pentateuch, but they, the first five books of the Bible, but they did not accept the prophets. And so they were seen by the, the Jews, the religious Jews of the day, as this sort of mixed race, this hybrid religion people that if you interacted with them, you would be unclean. And so if you could go around, even though it's a longer route, they would do it. And so when it says Jesus had to, what does it mean? It doesn't mean that there was literally no other physical route. It means that he wanted to go through Samaria. That word in the Greek is day, and every other place in John's gospel, that word had to or must meant it was a divine, uh, a, a, it was a divine necessity. So when, when John says, or when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, that's the same word, day, in the Greek. You must be born again. There's no other way to eternal life except to be born again. That same word is used here. It's a divine necessity. Jesus has a divine appointment with someone in Samaria. And the question that I want to ask is, what, what are... What is our Samaria? Can you relate to a place that you might, even though the shortest distance from point A to point B might be through this place, you want to skirt around it? I, I know there, we, my wife and I, Stephanie, used to live in West Seattle, and there's this place called High Point, which back in the day was really rough. And you would at best drive through it and fast and there's like graveyards, and it's just this really scary place. Projects. You definitely would not walk through it. And even <laughs> Ross, <laughs> he knows about High Point. And even today, when we lived in High Point, it's, it's greatly changed. There's places I would tell Stephanie at night, no, don't walk through there. Or even in the day, no, go a different route. And at night, there's places I wouldn't walk. So we understand this. It's had this idea of it was a sketchy place and Samaria for the Jews was a sketchy place because it was a sketchy people what is our Samaria today Stephanie I joke sometimes when we're uh, going on road trips I say you know what we could uh, we could live in gold bar we you know startup is a great place to start a family and she gives me this look like she's giving me now I think that's our Samaria. Let's continue. Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. And it's, it's really interesting. John is a gospel where we get the clearest picture of God as divine, or as Jesus as divine. But despite Jesus being God, we also fully see his humanity. And it's just a picture. I mean, it's a three days journey walking from Judea to Galilee. And he's probably somewhere in the midpoint. So imagine he's walked a full day, maybe 15 hours. They slept for the night. They got up early in the morning at sunrise and they start walking again. And now it's noon. And if any of you have gone on a really long walk, you would understand you would be exhausted. You've walked half the day, you're ready to take a break. And, and Jesus is no different. In his humanity, he can relate to us. He was tired, he was exhausted, he was thirsty. And you see Jesus sit down and take a rest. We serve a God that we can relate with. Verse 9, or sorry, verse 7. So we know Jesus demonstrates God's work to cross barriers of place because he enters into this place that's the wrong place from the Jewish perspective. It is not a place where a religious, strict Jew would want to be found, and yet he takes his place, he sits down, and he rests in this wrong place. But not only does God's work cross barriers of place, it crosses barriers of person. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, uh, this woman, did I lose a sheet? No, I didn't. Sorry, hold on one second. There we go, all right. Now, Jesus is in the wrong place, and now he starts talking to the wrong person. And, and why is this the wrong person? There's at least three reasons why this is the wrong person. Number one, it's a woman. In their culture, for a single religious Jew to talk to another woman in public would have been totally countercultural. It, it would have been unexpected. Like it shouldn't happen, basically. And he chooses to talk to this woman. He initiates the conversation, give me a drink. It's the wrong person, not just because she's a woman, but because she's a Samaritan. She's from the wrong ethnicity. She's from the wrong religion. She's the wrong person to be talking to. And furthermore, it's at an interesting time. It's at noon. Which, if you can imagine, if you've ever been to the Mediterranean during the summer, it's hot. And if you were to go and get water, which at that time, the, the primary role of getting water was the women would do that. And, and when can you guess would be the, the, the best time to go and grab water? In the morning or in the evening. Like the last time you would want to go is at noon in the heat of the day 
And so there's probably something up to that. There's something about her that is isolated. She's marginalized. She wants to come when no one else is there. The morning time would have been the, the best time to go, not just because of the heat, but because it's also a social opportunity. All the other women would be there. And so it's the time to sort of get out of your house, go do the chore. But while you're doing it, you're talking to all your friends. And she avoids that and goes in the hardest time of the day at noon. And Jesus chooses to talk to her. She's the wrong ethnicity. She's the wrong religion. She's the wrong gender. And Jesus initiates a conversation. And, and this unlikeliness is not lost on her. Like she sees and understands that this is very weird. This is very odd. And she says in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds the comment, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she is confused. Why is this guy talking to me? And what ensues is this conversation. And it's a beautiful conversation. It almost reminds me, if you, if you might imagine, like a tennis match. Jesus makes the initial serve, and then she volleys back, and Jesus volleys back. And you see this back and forth between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And, and Jesus has an agenda. This is not an accident. He's not merely thirsty. He wants something from this woman. And we're going to see what that is. Let's continue. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw again. Now, Jesus returns this question that the Samaritan woman had. Why are you talking to me? That's basically her question. And he says, if you knew who it is that is asking you to, to give me a drink, you would ask him. And he would give you living water. Now, living water in their day, she would have understood that. It wouldn't have been this weird term, okay? Living water was simply moving water. It was fresh water. It's the best water. Like the best water you want to find if you're looking for water in natural sources is moving water. Better than standing water, right? It's fresher. And so when he's saying, I'm going to give you living water... It, would, it wouldn't have been weird to her. She would have been like, oh, okay, you're, you're offering me better water maybe than what's in the well. So I'm offering, Jesus is offering her 
living water, but Jesus is not talking about H2O. She's talking about something different, but she doesn't quite understand it. Her response to Jesus is basically, who are you? Like, you don't have anything to draw with, number one, right? He's not carrying with him a, a bucket that's going to dip into the well. So she's looking at him like, who are you? You don't have anything to draw with. And this well was given to us by Jacob, our father, who was revered. Like, he drank from it himself. Like, this is good water. Like, what, what can you offer me that we don't already have in Jacob's well? That's basically what she is saying. And here, and, and Jesus' response to that, I think, is funny. Because to me, this is like salesman Jesus coming up here. And starting in verse uh, 13. He says, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you how this water's better. Like, first off, this water, if you drink it, you're never going to be thirsty again. Like, your water, <laughs> that water, you drink it, you're going to come back for more. But the water I'm going to give you, you're going to drink it and never be thirsty. But wait, there's more. If you drink the water that I give you, it will bubble up within you and pour out into eternal life. You'll never be thirsty and you'll live forever. <laughs> What's the response? She's interested now. Verse 14, or verse uh, 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw again. Now, does she understand what he's saying yet? Not quite. And that's why it, you, you might think, oh, he's got her now. She, she wants the water. Great, Jesus made the conversion. But she doesn't fully understand. And Jesus knows that she doesn't fully understand. And so Jesus is going to press in. He's going to hit another shot. And it's going to dig deeper deeper than what she is expecting. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, that's a little awkward, that conversation. Jesus just sort of went right past her desire for water and went into a space that definitely hit a nerve. The question is, why does Jesus do that? He tells her to go and call her husband. Jesus knows that she does not have a husband, and yet Jesus tells her to go call your husband. And I think what he's doing, he's, he's drawing out her pain. He's drawing out her shame and her guilt and bringing it to the surface because he says, that's the root of your problem. That's why you're here at noon. That is what needs to be dealt with by the living water that Jesus offers. And it's set, he's setting it up so that she knows 
that he knows everything about her. And that puts a different perspective on this conversation. She can't hide. Like, it's revealed. It's exposed. All of her darkest moments, her darkest secrets, her worst pains is, is laid to bear before this man who she did not know before. And now it changes the nature of the conversation. How many of us have wanted to hide behind happy faces? You come to church, you put on the happy face. How are you doing, brother? Blessed. How are you doing, sister? God is good. And we do that because we're afraid to let people know what's truly going on, what we're really struggling with, what our guilt that we're really, that's weighing us down, that's burdening us. Jesus wants to say, it's okay, I know everything about you, and I'm still in conversation with you. I know your deepest, darkest secrets. You are 100% known for me and known to me And I'm going to let you know that I know that and that I'm still here with you. I'm still pursuing you. That is Jesus demonstrating his love for her. He doesn't have to come and talk to her. He chooses to come and talk to her, knowing full well what she's about, fully. She's actually had five husbands. And now the man she's currently with she's not even married to, which clearly would have been shameful in her culture. She would have been ostracized. She would have been looked down upon. Like, no matter what the reason. Like, even in today, if someone is married five times, you look at them sideways. Like, five times? Really? Like, you can have an excuse for one, two, but five? Like, something wrong with you. Married five times. So if we would think that's weird or wrong or or something's odd, like the common denominator is you in that situation. They would have thought the same in this culture, and that explains why she's there at noon. That explains why when Jesus said, go call your husband, she just simply said, I have no husband. She didn't want to bring that up, but Jesus saw it and brought it up for her. Isn't it amazing that Jesus knows all this about the woman, yet still loves her. This is a picture of who Jesus is, what he's like. This is how he relates to us. I hope that we can see that no matter what we've been through, no matter what we've been guilty of, that that's not enough to turn away Jesus. Nothing that we can do is enough to turn away the love of Jesus. Now, she responds Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, I want to point out something of her response that I think is incredible. She says this to you, you're a prophet, which is like pretty obvious he, he knows something right if he's able to understand what she's been through okay there's something about him but there's also in that response she's actually owning up to her past she's saying you're right 
she's not hiding anymore. She's starting to come out of her shell. And she remains. And, 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 and then she asks a theological question. And, and that's in verse 20. Uh, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's referencing this disagreement that Jews had with the Samaritans about where you were supposed to worship. So the Jews believe that you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans believe you're supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim, which is where Abraham Abraham had set up some altars back in the day. So there's this disagreement. And, and some people have, have, have made a big point of saying, okay, now she's trying to change the subject. Which, when I first read this, I thought that's exactly what she was doing. Right? Jesus just brought up the junk, and it's ugly, and she didn't want it out there. So she's like, okay, all right, all right, let's talk about theology for a moment. There may be, there might be some of that going on. But as I reread this passage, something else stands out more to me. And it's the fact that she remains there. She doesn't have, if she is so troubled by the visibility and the heat that Jesus is bringing on her by, re, by, by putting out this truth out in the open, she doesn't have to stay there. She can politely say, sir, I've got to go bring water back to my town. Have a good day. I'm out of here. But the beautiful thing is she remains in the light. She remains in the heat. And I believe that's an indication that some level, her defenses, her walls, her barriers that she started to build up are starting to come down. And so now that she knows that this man, there's something special about this man. He obviously is able to look into my life and know me in a way that no other man could know me. Especially a stranger. And so now she moves from one barrier to another, which, okay, all right, so there's something about him, but he's a Jew. And we have this disagreement with Jews How can he be telling me the truth? And so she moves to this theological question, which I believe is important for her. So I don't believe it's simply a sidestep or simply a dodge. I think she's moving to the next problem, to the next thing in her mind that's a barrier between her and freedom. And so she brings up this idea of worship. Where should we worship? There's this agreement. I believe you have something to say. What do you say to that? And so Jesus responds. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And something pretty amazing is going on, because 
Jesus, who is a uh, religious teacher, a man, is having a theological conversation with a Samaritan woman, that is something that would have never happened in their day. Jesus is essentially saying, we're on the same playing field. I'm, we're going to engage in a theological debate or discussion. Jesus is choosing to respond to her question, not in a dismissive way, but in an engaging way. And he helps her to see that, that worship is not really about place. That's the teaching he's saying. He's saying, yep, salvation's from the Jews. That is true. But there's coming a day, there's coming an hour where it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in Jerusalem or whether you're in Mount Gerizim, because God is spirit, and he's seeking people who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And what he's saying is there's the, the hour that he's referencing is, is himself. He's come, and he's come to, to, to reconcile people to the Father, to break through people's sin, which was a barrier between them and God, and say, I have come to break down that barrier. I have come to tear down that wall and allow you to worship God wherever you are. And so as we think about that in, in today, it means you don't just come to church to worship. Like, this, there's nothing that spiritual about this building. I hope you know that. You can probably look at it, and you know there's nothing sacred about this building. What's sacred is God's Spirit within you. And that's what, G, that's what God does through Jesus. He gives us His Spirit so that we can worship Him wherever we are, in our homes, in our cars, at work, as we're singing, as we're walking through our Samarias. We can worship God. We have access to God directly to the Father, purchased by the blood of Jesus. And that's what he's saying to this woman, that worship is something much bigger than just where you're at. So he answers her question. How does she respond? Verse 25. She gets to this point where I feel like her, her walls are just crumbling down. And she's got one last defense. And this is it. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And, and what she's saying is, everything you've told me, okay, it makes sense. But we know, and they believe too, that there was a coming Messiah. There was this Savior. There's this prophet figure who was going to be the one. He's the one who had the authority to explain all these things. And so her last sort of defense school. Don't uh, pull out my phone. All right. All right. So, 
Let's see if I remember how to use one of these. Don't drop it, right. Speaking of mic drop. Um, I love it. He says, I who speak to you am he, which I love this, not just in this, but like in like YouTube videos where people do that. There was these Lyft commercials. I don't know if you ever saw those where um, you had these uh, famous people who would go undercover as Lyft drivers, um, famous sports people, Richard Sherman, Jerry Rice, and whatnot. And, and they would be in disguise. Some of them are hard to disguise, like Shaquille O'Neal. Like, how do you not know it's Shaquille O'Neal driving a Lyft? Uh, uh, and so, but some of them, you, uh, for some reason, some people didn't like, like, did not know it was Richard Sherman, like, sitting there. And so someone's like, you know, oh, that Richard Sherman, he's really good, but he's a little mouthy, you know. And, and, and Richard's just sort of smiling, driving the Lyft driver. And, and, uh, and inevitably, at the end of all these commercials, there's this big reveal. And they're like, oh, I'm Richard Sherman, or I'm Shaq, or, you know. And, <laughs> and they're just, like, dumbfounded. Like, oh, my God. And then they're just like fanboys or fangirls over this, over the reveal. I am the person you're talking about. That's what Jesus is saying. The one that you're hoping for, the one that's going to settle the score, that one that's going to definitively tell me everything that needs to happen and, and everything that I should be, I'm he. That's who I am. This is the first great I am, by the way. Uh, Theologically, Jesus uses this term, I am, several times throughout the Gospel of John. And it's an interesting term because who gets to say I am without anything following? We get to say I am in Seattle, I am born from, I am uh, a person. I, you know, we started from something. We came from something. We originated from something. So we, I am, you have to add something. You can't just say, I am, period. And we're going to get to another place, other places where Jesus says that. Here he is actually saying, I am. And he's not, let me go to the, go to the thing. Verse 26. I, uh, in the translation that we're reading, it says, I who speak to you and he, but he doesn't, in the Greek, there's no he. It's just, uh, I am, and then speaking to you. So, so Jesus is basically alluding to his, his, his godhood, his ever presence in this passage. Okay, so, Jesus drops the mic. And now in the midst, we, we get interrupted. We don't immediately see the response of the woman. Now his disciples come back. So his disciples had gone back to, to get some food. And so now they're just happily marching back with their jack-in-the-box in tow. And, and then they, they come onto the scene, and, and they're just, like, surprised, right? Our teacher, our rabbi, he's talking to a woman. And, and it says they dare not ask. They, no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? But they were thinking it. Right? If I was there, I would be thinking it too. Is he getting his game on? Like, what is he doing? He's talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman at that. So they're having these questions. And then we see the response of the woman, verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be 
the Christ. And they went out of town and were coming to him. And this is an incredible response because now we see that all the walls have come down and she's free. She even, she's so in a rush to get back to the people and tell the town of what she saw that she leaves her water jar. She says, it's not about water anymore. I've got some living water to bring back to my town. And all the shame and guilt that she felt around being people is, is, is melted in the news of what, who Jesus might be. And she goes back to the town in front of all the people that she probably didn't want to be around. And she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Christ? Come and see. And they believed her. They said, okay, this is different. We're going to go with you. We're going to go with you. And so then John says, pause on that story. Now we're going to go back to these disciples who've got the jack in the box in their hand and are marveling at the fact that I'm talking to this woman. In verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Here we move into the second section. God's work nourishes the soul by producing the joyful fruit of eternal life. It's interesting. Here again, Jesus is using sort of basic things. First, he uses water to illustrate something spiritual. And now he's using food to illustrate, again, something spiritual. It's a natural thing. His disciples say, okay, we know you're hungry because you asked us to go buy food. Now we've brought the food, and, and you're not eating it, and we're trying to urge you to eat the food. And now you're saying, I have food. I already have food that you don't know of. Like, where did you get the food? That's what, that's what they're thinking. Did, did that Samaritan woman bring the food? Were they having a picnic? You know, who knows what they're thinking. They're just wondering, why is he not eating? And then Jesus says, he explains exactly why he's not eating. Because my food is to do the will of the Father. In other words, the work that the Father had called him to was his nourishment. When we think of nourishment, nourishment from a definition standpoint is that uh, which is necessary for life, health, and growth. And so food is nourishment for our bodies. But what Jesus is trying to illustrate, what is nourishment for our souls? What gives our souls life, health, and growth? And I think that clue is found as he continues in verse 35. He says, do you not know, or do you not say... There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Sower and reaper may rejoice together. So he he begins to explain this work that his, his father's will 
in terms of agriculture, sowing and reaping. And he says there, that sower and reaper rejoice when there's fruit. And in another translation, says, what joy awaits the, the, the sower, uh, the planter, and the reaper, and the harvester? It's this joy that Jesus is after. There, there's a, a sense of, of rejoicing and happiness and joy when we partake and when we participate in the work that God has given us to do. And I think we know this, if we've experienced it, you do a nice thing for someone, and you get a sense of satisfaction from it. You get a sense of joy from it. And when you participate in the work of God, and specifically in sowing the seeds of this message that God is proclaiming, the message, the, 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 the ministry that, that God had sent Jesus to do to proclaim this grace and love to this woman, there's a joy in seeing the light bulb go on and her defenses come down and to see her freely running and excited to tell about this Savior. I remember uh, the, the most, uh, I think, incredible instance that I've seen of, of sowing and reaping and seeing uh, someone come to eternal life as I was in Japan one time, uh, or not in Japan, in, in India. And I was speaking with a Japanese lady, uh, me and some, and some friends. And we got into this two-hour conversation on theology, and, and she was an atheist, and, and we were just hashing it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, two hours. And, and I felt like she was curious, but she just had these hang-ups. And I tried to answer the best way I could all of the theological hang-ups she had, the philosophical hang-ups she had the emotional hang-ups she had. And I remember leaving the conversation wondering, did, did that seed plant, was, was, was there any fruit that was going to come about from that conversation? And I think we've all had conversations like that where it seems like these conversations are not going anywhere. But we're trying to be obedient. And I think it was the next day Maybe today. I think it was the next day. I got a message in Facebook. And she wrote to me. She said, Caleb, I believe. I believe in Jesus. You won't believe what happened. She said, someone, she said, I was thinking about our conversation. And, and then my, my son uh, had a stomach ache. And I said to those, there were other Christians around who were friends. I said, would you, would you pray for my, my son? And, 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 and if he's healed, maybe I can believe. And so they all prayed for his son who had a stomachache. And they, as soon as they prayed, got done praying, his stomachache left instantly. And for her, that was the trigger. That was the thing that made it make sense to her. And so she just wrote me this long message, so excited. And guess what? I was so excited when I saw that message. And so I sowed a seed, and someone else sowed, and then we all together rejoiced in the reaping of what God done in her life. And that is the nourishment of our souls. That's the way in which it's food. When we can see the benefits of what God is doing in the lives of other people, we 
get nourishment from it. We get life from it. We get health from it. We grow because of it. And so a lot of us think, when we think about God's work, when we think about ministry, sometimes we think of it as like arduous tasks or something that's hard or something that's burdensome or something that's uncomfortable. And yes, sometimes it's all those things, but we need to also see it as food. Who here, when you're hungry, you just naturally want to eat? If we're spiritually depressed, maybe we should serve. Maybe we should sow. God says, Jesus says, that's my food. It's to do the will of the Father. And on the other side of that is rejoicing. It's joy. It's happiness. It's contentment. It's the things we search for in life and try to find it in material things and possessions and accomplishments and awards. But Jesus is saying, if you love people, that's where the fruit is found. That's where the joy is found. And Jesus walks this out, and he's trying to teach his disciples what it looks like to truly eat. Do we believe this? Do we believe that doing the Father's will is food for us, is life-giving, is joy-filling? The scriptures say, you make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's continue. You, you get this um, sowing and reaping. Uh, verse 37 through 38, I don't think I read that yet. For the, here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. I think this is a helpful illustration because sometimes you don't always see the fruit right away. Sometimes you sow, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you don't see it. Like, this this, has happened to me, and I'm sure has happened to many of you. I remember one time I had a a lunch uh, conversation with a gentleman, and uh, we were... Uh, going through the book of Ecclesiastes. He was curious. He was interested. Uh, we went through it. I was, I was waiting for him to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And he's like, okay, but yeah, I'm not sure. And uh, I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm not sure what will come with it. And then, and then two years later, I saw him again. And he was just like, praise Jesus. I love the Lord. He's changed me. I was like, whoa, what's happened? <laughs> like, he was, more, he was more on fire than I was. I'm like, tell me what happened. And he told me, he said, he, it was not just me. It wasn't that conversation we had at lunch, you know, two years ago. But other people spoke into his life time after time. He had some hard circumstances, things that he had to walk through. And he sought the Lord, and the Lord met him. So sometimes it takes years to see the fruit. But God does produce fruit. There's sowing and there's reaping. And sometimes uh, we meet people on any end of the spectrum of where, there are, or where they're at in their journey. We just don't know. And so it's helpful to understand that sometimes you're just going to sow and that's all you're going to see. You're going to sow a good work. You're going to sow a good word, a message. And, and, and it's just gonna, you're just going to leave it at that and trust that someone else is going to come along the way 
to sow another seed, to, to water it. And then eventually, hopefully, by the Lord's grace, we'll see growth. It's God the one who actually does the growing. And that frees us up from this burden of feeling like we have to convert people or we have to change people or we have to change people's minds. We just proclaim what we know. Like this woman who heard about, like what, when she heard this, uh, the, the message that Jesus was telling her, did she have to go to a class afterwards? Did she have to get a degree before she went out? She was ready as soon as she believed the message. And she ran, and she went out, and she sowed the seed. She said, come and see, I've learned who the Messiah is. That's all we need. You're ready now if you believe, and all you need to do is just be a witness of what Jesus has done in your life. Just be a witness. And we see the fruit in verse 39 of her witness. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This picture, Jesus went ahead. So when they, it says they stayed, Jesus and his disciples, they stayed with uh, the woman, they stayed with the people in the town of Sychar. And because of their further testimony, they believed even more, and more people came to believe. And so what you see is this interesting partnership where you have the wrong person from the wrong place who had practiced the wrong things partnering with the perfect person, Jesus, and together co-ministering to other people. And that's the picture that God gives for us as a church. We don't work apart from Jesus. We don't work apart from God's help, but we are co-partners with him. And he allows us to participate with him in engaging those around us if we really believe and understand what Jesus has done for us. And we can see that following in him and his work is food for us. Then that should give us all the more encouragement to go out and praise God for, for, for the joy that he gives us in salvation. And I love that song that we were singing earlier. Oh, the joy of full salvation sin and death defeated. And that's true. That no matter what guilt you have, no matter what your past is, no matter what your practices were, or no matter what your practices are now, Jesus will not leave us. Jesus still pursues us. He still loves us. His grace is for us. He's for you. That's the good news. He's for you as ugly as you are. As ugly as that junk is, Jesus says, I know, but I love you, and I have something better for you. And that's the message that we have as the church for this community, that God has something better than the division. 
that we see in the community. God has something better than poverty. God has something better than pain and hurt. God has something better than loneliness and isolation. God has given us his son to be, in our, to be his presence of God in our midst. And that is good news. And so I hope that as a church, we will grow in sowing. And we will grow in seeing uh, uh, God's fruit being born in the midst by his power. We are called to work together for the reconciliation and renewal of all people only by the power of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you love the wrong people. Father, I thank you that nothing that we've done, that nothing about who we are, that nothing about where we live, that nothing about our race or ethnicity, that nothing about our gender is enough to stop you from coming for us. I thank you for the way in which you love this Samaritan woman and I thank you, Lord, for what you were teaching your disciples. I thank you, Father, for what you are teaching us. And I pray, Lord, that that we would know, as your word says in Ephesians, Lord, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep your love is for us. Lord, would you cause this living water to bubble up within us and to touch every part of our bodies to know without a doubt that you are king, that you are Lord, that you are sovereign, and that you love us. And Lord, would that love compel us to share that message with others? Lord, not in a judgmental way, not in an annoying way. Lord, but just out of out of a childish heart of excitement at what you've done in us and for us. Help us, Father, to grow in understanding how much joy there is in serving you. Father, would you help us, those of us who have things that we wanted to hide, things that we're ashamed to bring up, Father, I pray that we can bring it to you And know, Lord, that you will not reject us. But, Lord, you will accept us and ask us to follow you. Lord, would you help us? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.